Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Deputy Editor Josie Tutty and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is News Editor Paul Warbeck. Hi there. And Senior Agencies Reporter Abigail Dawson. Hello. And later on, we'll be talking to Nick Jones, the CEO of Pure Profile, about the importance of simplicity. And if you're going to sell something to somebody, if you can't explain it easily and help them understand what the benefit of buying whatever it is you're selling to them, you ain't going to be a successful salesperson. Australia's place on the map. In a properly global company, Australia is usually between 1% and 2% of your revenue. And the recent executive team changes. When we start somewhere, we all go, okay, is this, you know, what I expected it to be? Is this what I wanted it to be? But first, the week's topics. The government announces Ida Buttrose as ABC chair. Ten pools changing rooms. And what happened when we crunched five years worth of radio data? So first up, the government has just announced Ida Buttrose as chair of the ABC. Oh, some are saying this wasn't the most obvious choice. What do you think now it's been announced? Well, now it's been announced, it's starting to make a little bit more sense in that it could have been much, much worse. The coalition in particular, but governments of both uh, shades, do have a really bad record of choices in, um, in chairs of the boards and not just the ABC board, but other boards as well. However, if we'd been having this conversation last week and someone had said Ita Buttrose for this role, we would have all gone, no, you're smoking something. So this is really <laughs> out of this is really out of left field. Uh, I've got to say, though, watching her um, media conference with the Prime Minister at the time it was announced, she actually performed really well. And uh, it looked like um, she'll have the spine to stand up to uh, uh, ministers and prime ministers um, that a lot of the more recent appointees haven't had and certainly her predecessor certainly didn't have. One of the things that surprises me, though, is that anybody would take this role before the federal election because after the federal election, all bets are off. It could be somebody completely different as minister or prime minister, even the coalition that win, which a lot of people are pretty well writing them off. But if they do pull it off and get back into government, we may have a completely different prime minister, a completely different communications minister. And for whoever is the chairman of the ABC, they could be in a very, very difficult place. So she's got the experience as an executive editor at News Corp and a senior editor at Australian Consolidated Press under Kerry Packer. So she really has had, um, she's dealt with the tough tough people at the big end of town before. So uh, I think dealing with prime ministers and um, angry communications ministers, she'll probably do quite all right with that. Now she does have lots of experience in the media, but it was all relatively a long time ago now, several decades ago that she was in those edi- editorial positions. Do you think that's going to be a problem for her in the current digital landscape? You know, there's lots of talk about the issues around Facebook and Google, and it was actually something that was put to her in the conference this week. Um, but do you think she has it in her to fully understand the landscape as it is now? 
It is going to be a weakness, I think, because she has been out of the day-to-day media roles for 30 years. And of course, it, it may as well be a different century in that respect. Well, it is a different century. <laughs> but um, but the, um, the thing with it is, is that uh, when you look at some of the um, uh, stale, male, pale um, people that were being kicked around for it, a lot of them didn't really seem to have a lot of digital smarts either. And uh, a lot of these long-established people that have been in the media um, space haven't performed that well with the digital uh, change either so uh, maybe it's not going to be so bad and again when she was asked that at the press conference um, her response was pretty mm. impressive and also Justin Milne who was supposedly this digital uh, wonderkin the whole project Jetstream, um, <laughs> this was just uh, fantasy stuff. Whereas I think, Isa, the strength she's going to bring is that if the managing director of the day or senior management of the day bring to the board some proposal like Project Jetstream, having worked for a large media organisation and knowing the disruption that something like that brings in, she's probably going to be much more of a voice of sense, common sense, than uh, Justin Milne certainly was. And I did get the feeling at the conference when she was asked that question it almost sounded like she felt like it was a bit condescending. She was like, of course, someone that's worked in the media would know the issues. And I did feel like maybe she's starting to feel like she's being asked that question a bit too much. And obviously she does know the issues. I mean, anyone who's vaguely in the media does understand those issues. Oh, most definitely. And uh, we should keep in mind that while she hasn't been in a management or senior editorial role for uh, that time, she has been kicking around the uh, press for quite, and particularly television for quite a long time now since since she stepped down from editorial roles. Um, and also, Paul, there was a song that you kept referencing that I had no idea what you were talking about. Do you want to just explain what you're, what you're going on about? I can picture Tim, who's not here today, listening to this <laughs> and uh, chuckling away at me being the oldest person in the building. And uh, yeah, this is... Uh, I'll throw to Cold Chisel's Ida from 1980. I think it was in the top 10 for like 20 weeks in 1981. <laughs> And next up, Ten has had a rocky week this week with changing rooms being pulled from its schedule. Abby, what happened with this one? Ten's changing rooms, which is a, a renovation program, I suppose, uh, was was pulled from air earlier this week. It debuted with two hundred and four thousand metro viewers, and then it saw a slight increase to two hundred and ninety eight thousand, but then fell to 196,000 and crashed further to 135,000. So that is pretty poor ratings for a show that was on it at prime time at 7.30. That, that's pretty low ratings, especially when you're going up against something like Nine's Married at First Sight, which has just been such a massive success for them. But I think the thing uh, that's interesting about changing rooms, if we sort of look back to 2016, Nine had a renovation program on called Renovation Rumble. Uh, and that was considered as as a flop and quote unquote, it tanked. And its premiere was 395,000. So it's almost double what 
what change rooms was getting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so that premiered there and then when it failed to break 450,000 Metro viewers, which is significantly higher than than 10's changing rooms, nine moved the show out of prime time. And yeah, that was when it didn't break over 450 uh, for the first four outings. So I think you could consider it as as, as a big a big flop mm. for 10 uh, and, and it is a shame because I think 10, you know, now that I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, has has finished and isn't in that prime time spot anymore. They really need to fill that gap and they need to fill it fast because, you know, seven uh, has uh, My Kitchen Rules and, and nine Married at First Sight, which both do very, very well for the for the networks. Uh, and, and 10 sort of has a bit of a gaping hole here at the moment. Yeah, so to, just to put this into perspective, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which was on 10, was pulling over 1 million Metro viewers on its opening night. So 10 has had a bit of a bad run of premieres quite recently. Uh, Dancing with the Stars premiered with 621,000 Metro viewers, which in the grand scheme of things actually doesn't sound that bad. Um, but then Sunday Night Takeaway premiered with 383,000. So none of those numbers are looking that great for 10. And I mean, it's it's the second show that they've pulled recently. They, they also pulled Pointless uh, three weeks ago after being on air for, for less than a year. So 10 is really struggling and and I think you know with with the exception of the bachelor and and the bachelorette they they really do need a new program to keep viewers interested in channel 10 and and to 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 entice viewers to tune in and watch them because you know as a consumer you think you know you have standout shows on on nine and seven certainly at the moment but 10 not a lot I mean Every time I write the radio ratings, uh, often their most watched program is 10 years first. And that's, you know, a fair way down the list. And on top of that, too, the, one of the big problems is we're talking about um, overall numbers uh, in the demographics, which traditionally they used to do quite well in mm. those younger demographics, uh, despite not having, say, a top 20 show. They'd still do well when you drill down. They're not even in the game there. Um, uh, I had uh, one of the 10 PRs. Um, uh, saying to me, oh, but if you take out all the news, then we're in uh, the 16 to 39 <laughs> demographic, I think they said. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you're, you're rating less than the news, which tends to skew older in, in itself. Yeah. So mm. they really do have a problem. And uh, you've got to wonder too what this is doing to their share of ad spend as well, because um, you can't see advertisers spending that much money on things that people just aren't watching. And do you think they're right to pull shows if they're performing that badly? Is it the right thing to do to almost treat it like a pilot week? It's almost like they're testing these shows in front of the audience and then just sort of giving up on them. Or should they really be sticking around, you know, trying to make it work and trying to grow the audience over time? Well, I think there's three things that are a problem there. First of all, it's a really expensive way to do pilot yep. weeks. Second, it's a big loss of face, a big loss of credibility. And third, if you're selling to those advertisers, you're having to sell in advance there. And of course, if you're not delivering the audiences that you're telling those advertisers you're going to get, mm. there's a lot of money you're going to have to give back. And I think the interesting thing that you pointed out there, Paul, is credibility, you know, their credibility with, with advertisers and, and certainly with media agencies as well. If if you're going to be pulling shows all the time, it does make it really difficult to to have that trust in, in the station and in the network that the numbers that they say are going to deliver 
are actually what they're going to deliver. And I think that's probably a big problem for the for the station. And so next up, we're going to be playing with time a little bit to bring you a chat with Zoe, who has sadly departed us for a new role at The Australian. Uh, we will be chatting to her about her final big feature for Umbrella, where she crunched five years worth of radio data. It was a lot of data. That is a lot of data. <laughs> Zoe is here with us now to chat to us about a project that she has been tackling before she leaves, where she crunched five years of radio data from across the five metro cities. Zoe, why on earth did you do this? It's a big task. Yeah, I'm mad. I shouldn't have I shouldn't have started it. Um, I have been doing radio ratings for probably about a year and a half. I think I've done something like there's eight surveys a year for those who don't follow the radio ratings. And I've, I've done at least two years of that. And what I felt was that every single time we do it, we weren't really getting a very big picture. We were getting survey to survey, maybe 12 months, a 12 month look at best of particular radio shows of particular stations in each market. And I was getting really caught up in the different programming directors and their jargon as well. So they were all saying they were number one for whatever thing. And I just thought, you know, it's not very easy for our readers to actually work out how things are performing and how they've been performing over time and what's working and what's not working and, and what audiences changed. So I noticed in all of that that uh, a couple of programmers were talking a lot about cumulative audience, which we can get to the breakdowns of that in, in a while. And and I actually had a, I did a course with Commercial Radio Australia and GFK, who is the measurement provider for Commercial Radio Australia, and they they sort of started breaking things down for me. And I thought, you know, it would be good to get an idea given we have on the Commercial Radio Australia website five years' worth of data, would be good to get an idea of what's actually happened in five years, what these stations look like. I know that we talk a lot about, say, in when Kyle and Jackie O, who are the KISS FM breakfast hosts, moved in 2014 over to KISS from Today FM. But what did that actually look like in numbers? What did that actually mean for the market? And is Today FM performing the way that everyone assumes they are? So there were things like that that I really wanted to get through. And so I decided that I would um, – start this task that I thought took me take me three weeks and it's taken me almost six months <laughs> <laughs> well so just before we get into what you actually found the two pieces of data that you were looking at were the cumulative audience and the average audience now for those who maybe aren't in the radio industry or have heard those terms and can never quite pin down exactly what they mean could you give us a little explainer sure um and if you want to to read it instead of hear it because I think some people like that you can read it on um, the various stories we've broken it down but essentially cumulative cumulative audience is looking at whether I listened to a show or station for at least eight minutes per quarter hour within a given time period like breakfast drive Um, average audience looks at the average number of people listening per quarter hour so That might be a little bit confusing, but essentially average audience takes into account how much time I spent listening to a particular station or show and cumulative audience looks at whether I listened at least once or not. So say there were a number of really loyal listeners to a particular show like 2GB, you'd probably see their average audience to be quite high because they're spending a large period of time listening to it, whereas shows with um, new talent or they might have done a big marketing campaign would be looking for something like cumulative audience to spike the numbers. So they're looking at mass reach as opposed to how long people are actually spending listening. Now, 
the first question everyone has been asking you when you tell them what you've been up to is what did you find now I imagine that's quite a difficult question to answer when there's so much data but maybe let's take a look at each city more broadly and just maybe if you could just explain a little bit what you found in each sure um Look, there's so much to break down and I think when people thought – I don't think anyone knew when I was speaking to a few people to, to 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 help with this story. They understood what it would look like in the end, which is quite hard um, to explain to people. But essentially there are a few key things that I learnt from different stations in different markets. So if we break it down by station, um, there's some really strong performing stations for ARN who owns – uh, WSFM Pure Gold and the KISS Network across Australia, um, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, um, Gold FM being the Melbourne uh, sort of lead for them and, and KISS FM with Kyle and Jackie O, as I mentioned before, in Sydney um, being a very strong station, as is WS. Um, I noticed that for the HIT Network, which is owned by Southern Cross Stereo, the numbers seem to perform quite well in uh, Brisbane and Melbourne. There was, uh, for Triple M, it was actually uh, Adelaide and Brisbane, which really surprised me, as opposed to Sydney and Melbourne, which they're they're quite well known for with their with their breakfast shows. Nova, which owns Nova and Smooth, not surprisingly was fairly consistent in most markets. So massive pickup for both music stations uh, for ARNs, WS and Gold, and also for Nova's Smooth and of course Nova's actual uh, Nova Entertainment's Nova Network performed pretty pretty it was pretty consistent in every market which is actually in line with what their programming director Paul Jackson has been saying to me for two years so Paul if you're listening you uh fulfilled exactly what uh or you you have been telling me exactly what is happening for two years so congratulations I was not very surprised um there are obviously other things to take into account so what I've noticed is uh cumulative audience has grown in every major capital city. So that's Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth over the last five years, which means that or there's lots of different things, ways you could interpret it. It could be a population growth or it could just simply suggest that there are more different people listening to radio in those cities. What was interesting though was that average audience for Sydney and Melbourne had actually declined gradually year on year, which suggests that maybe while that Cume is going up and so lots of different people are listening. They're probably not listening for the large periods of time that they might have. Whereas if you look at something like Adelaide, uh, Perth or Brisbane, average audience was fairly stagnant, which meant that it, people hadn't really changed how often they were consuming it despite Cume going up. So it was very different. The average audience told a very different story. The, the last thing that I'd probably say that I noticed when we're looking at stations was the story of Macquarie Media and some of their stations. So you've got something like 2GB and Sydney 3AW, really strong brands, 6PR in Perth, which has slowly started to grow in that market. But then on the other hand, you have what was the former 2UE that's now Macquarie Sports Radio and and the changes that were made to Magic in both, or it wasn't even Magic, it was 4BH in Brisbane, then Magic, and then Magic down in Melbourne. There's just been so many changes over that time and it's been fascinating to watch how that's actually affected audience, whether or not they've stuck around for it, did they adapt to it. It's It has been really really interesting and this year particularly for the Macquarie Sports Radio channels it's going to be really interesting to see whether the numbers go up whether they attract a new audience in Um, the other thing that I'd probably say is that if we look at the AM dial as a whole and I, I know that a lot of my work had a bit about declines in the ABC the audiences tend to skew older for those stations anyway there's that to consider but overall consumption of the am dial has declined year on year it's completely changed and it's important to consider that too 
Now, obviously, this is a podcast, but there are some very nice shiny graphs that Zoe has made in all of these features. So if you're more of a visual learner, then it might be good to check those out. We'll leave a link to those in the description for this episode. So what has been the most challenging part of this whole process for you? Um, The most challenging part would be context. What has never been done before or nothing that I've seen anyway is not only putting those five years worth of data into graphs and looking at those numbers, but understanding changes to talent, changes to music formats, the implications of one station over another station in that particular market. And for me, I've I've spent a lot of my life in Sydney and I've, I've traveled to Melbourne a bit. So Sydney and Melbourne were a lot easier for me to understand the context. And I knew more or less how that radio market operated. I found it a lot harder as I got further away from Sydney, so Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth to understand that. I was lucky that I obviously had people uh, helping me in the background to understand these markets and I'll be incredibly grateful for their for their help. But it was particularly difficult to go, okay, this person, why is there a huge spike at Survey 4 of 2015 or why did it drop off for four months? And I think, you know, a, a great example is – uh, there was there's a few different things like the passing away of a talent star or a, a, t- a star being suspended. Things like maternity leave are obviously going to affect those numbers as well. So it's just understanding all of those different spikes and all of those different uh, – what those implications mean. And it's not easy to find online because what you find with most media outlets is they report on their markets. So the Perth papers will tend to focus solely on Perth talent. The Adelaide papers will work on Adelaide talent. Melbourne and Sydney are the same. So when you're looking at trying to understand more broadly speaking what is happening, it's actually you have to go digging and you have to know what you're looking for before you start. And a lot of my time outside of just crunching numbers was just making sure I had all those all of those different changes in my head so that I could actually create a free-flowing conversation. And another challenge I had, and it's probably not been so, I guess, fundamental to what I've actually been working on, but something to keep in the back of your mind is that every single network is going to feed you very different information. And even this week, I think I saw something in the AFR and Rear Window by Miriam Robin that was basically saying that Southern Cross Stereo had put its digital radio listeners on top of its uh, the, the listeners that we've spoken about today and, and made itself look bigger than all the other networks, so ARN, Nova, Macquarie, et cetera. And was that in their financial results? That was in their financial results. Now, the numbers that we did, we tried to do like for like, so they don't include the digital radio numbers which got introduced in later years. But it's an incredibly complex subject. It's incredibly hard to look through and dissect everything. And what I found was I had to sort of remove myself from all of that when I was working on this and just purely stick to what we had and not what all the rhetoric that I've heard over the last two years to get this done. And I'm hoping that what we've created as a result is something that makes it clearer for our readers and clearer for people who aren't working in the radio industry and look at these numbers every single day. Um, The other thing that was quite hard but I can't take full credit for um, was actually getting all the data entry done. So when I started this project, I did the Sydney market myself on top of my normal day-to-day work and it took me almost three months and I thought, oh my God, I am never going to get this done. So I actually have to say thank you very much to Ria, who is our administration assistant at Mumbrella. Ria took the time for me to go through the other markets and do some data entry. I honestly could not have got this project done in the time that I did without her. And she's done an incredible job. And 
she basically was responsible for looking at total market, breakfast and drive in every capital city uh, before I put them into graphs. So thank you very much, Taria. Okay, cool. Well, thank you, Zoe, for explaining all that. And if you want to check out all these features and the shiny graphs, then you can follow the links in the description for this episode. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks, Joyce. Joining us in the studio, we have Shambles Communications, Gareth Eden-Stite and comedian Cam Knight. Hey, Josie. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having us. That's all right. Now, if you're wondering why Cam and Gareth are here, that's because they're involved in Pitch to Punchline, which takes place on Monday, the 3rd of June, the week of Mumbrella 360, and will raise funds for mental health charity Batir. Cam is gearing up to mentor 20 applicants for six weeks before they perform at the gala event in front of up to 300 members of the industry at Sydney Opera House, no less. Cam, what's your what's your best advice for dealing with hecklers? Well, sometimes it can be a bit of fun. Sometimes it can really ruin an evening. You've just got to just got to gauge how that goes and put that spot far out pretty quickly. I mean, I enjoy a bit of crowd work every now and then, but yeah, you do have to make sure it doesn't get out of control and you lose the rest of the crowd. I had a, a, a person one time years ago that was so drunk in the crowd and they wanted to get on board and heckle, but they were so drunk they forgot how to speak English, so they were just screaming the word. Was heckle, it? heckle <laughs> at us. It's like, I don't know how to respond to that, you know. <laughs> it's probably worth pointing out, though, that we'll make sure that our event doesn't have any hecklers. I mean, yeah, uh, I it's, will. it's very much a safe environment. So oh, no yeah. one's going to get on stage and have people going, you fucking fuck up. Yeah. Type of- <laughs> no, no one's going to say that. I will be. Oh, you're, I'll be you're- shouting it at them so we can experience <laughs> this together. Uh, they'll know how to handle it. But no, I think even... Um, when I'll host uh, the open mic event for them and also host the event at the Opera House, I'll make sure that the crowd is uh, fully warmed up and that everybody understands the uh, situation, what the environment needs, and uh, to encourage no heckling, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just going to be a room of love, trust and understanding, isn't <laughs> it, mate? Yeah, well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to become a standout stand-up or sponsor this cracking event, and why wouldn't you, you can visit pitchtopunchline.com, that's two, number two, and applications close on the 28th of March. Now, next up, we've got a chat between our very own Tim Burrows and Pure Profile CEO Nick Jones. Next on the Mumbrella cast, we're joined by Pure Profile CEO Nick Jones. Now, Nick joined Pure Profile in uh, 2017, having previously been Chief Revenue Officer of Vivo, the music video joint venture owned by Universal Music Group, Sony Music Entertainment and EMI. And over a 30-year career, I don't know how it can possibly be with someone who looks so young, <laughs> Nick's roles have included Managing Director of Yahoo Australia and New Zealand, Managing Director of News Corps, News Digital Media and EMEA, Chief Digital Officer at Starcom Media Vest, which I think when I first crossed paths with you, Nick, because I remember back in my days on B&T, you, you spoke at one of our first digital boot camps when digital was a, a new thing. So I think that would have been in your Starcom days then, I, I would have I think thought. it might have even been before. And actually, it's, a, it's actually a really sad thing that my memory of those early days of digital in Australia were very focused around Australia being ahead of the curve. Indeed, I got asked and paid for to go to London to speak at a conference when 
not long after we'd launched Nine MSN, which is one of the other gigs that was in there uh, between Fairfax and um, and Yahoo, and um, we were way ahead of the UK. And I suppose were one to look at today, you'd have to say that the tables have turned considerably. And uh, and I guess in that period, the digital business where we were, I mean, I vividly remember moving from Fairfax to Nine MSN. And agencies in particular, but clients saying, what on earth are you doing leaving newspapers to go to this internet thing? Um, and it's just, it, I mean, it, you know, I don't want to sound like a grumpy old man, but it's just, it's, it's remarkable how you do sort of overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term And it's interesting change. what you say about newspapers as well, because... You know, sort of. I, I know at your time at News Corp, sort of News Digital was a sort of separate beast. Fairfax mm-hmm. had their digital operation. If I'm, if, if I understand correctly, even a different building altogether. It it felt like it took news the newspaper industry a long time to wake up to the fact that digital was going to be one and the same, and to think about it as one thing. They certainly weren't slow in realizing what was happening. In fact. Actually, my first connection with digital was at Fairfax. So I'm sure, you know, as they say, success has many fathers and failure has is an orphan. But but right at the very beginning, before there was any F2 or any Fairfax Digital, the very first digital activity Fairfax did was the computer section on a on a Monday which was miles behind the Australian computer section, which was incredibly successful and lots of recruitment on a Tuesday. And we were looking for something to start digitally and everybody was absolutely terrified of what it was going to do to the newspaper. So I think there was was an acceptance that this was an important thing. And Fairfax sent me to the US back in... 95 to go and see what the the American newspapers were doing. So there was no lack of, oh, this is a thing. But to your point, the idea that it would be absolutely the main game or absolutely part of everything was clearly resisted for a long time. And I, you know, if you have editors who are incentivized, I don't necessarily monetarily, but incentivized by their, their circulation and their readership, and it's not in what people do on digital isn't included in that, then you kind of have two things at play that are counterintuitive. And I guess the other thing you had as well at that point was classified, print classified was such a big part of the business model. The rivers of gold. Indeed. Yes, the rivers of gold. To do anything that would potentially, even if it was disrupt yourself, disrupt that would have been quite a challenging thing to do. Yeah, and, and that's the point. With Fairfax, the reason we went with the computer section is we were way behind the Australian and we kind of had nothing to lose because we didn't have a lot of uh, recruitment advertising in the computer section of the Herald. Whereas I don't think I'm exaggerating. I, I think on a Tuesday, the Aussie maybe had, you know, 20 pages solid set of recruitment of, of computer recruitment. So that whole idea of let's do something that won't disrupt you know our river, our rivers of gold, and obviously Fairfax kind of in general had more of the rivers than anybody else did. Um, was definitely part of the of the 
of the thinking and the way that people were approaching digital. Now you um, a, a little bit later, so you 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 were then at News Corp with News Digital, and then went agency side, mm-hmm. which is it's one of those cycles we still see see today of people going back and forth, media owner to agency and and back again. We've just seen uh, Paul Brooks do it. Obviously, we go from agency back to Channel Nine, for mm-hmm. instance. People go in the other direction. How did you find the transition to the world of agencies? I, I found it really hard. I think um, you're right. It, I, don't know, I, I really don't know how people view it now, but certainly when I did it, it was it seemed quite like quite a natural thing to do. And this then, was to Starcom. This was to Starcom, and that was having left news, and it was kind of a almost like a backdoor into agency land because I set up my own consulting business, and Starcom came to me and said, "We're we're about to pitch for." the General Motors business, and we need some help with the digital part of the pitch. And it was an enormous pitch. I mean, there were some serious 24-hour days um, uh, pulled, and the whole pitch itself probably took about a six-month period. And I led the digital part of that, and 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 I loved that, and that's what kind of <laughs> hooked me in. I think when I, when I got into agency land, I realized just how difficult it is. And I think for me, having being in the middle where you had clients who were continually trying, <laughs> making it difficult for you and, and sort of every five minutes, it seems saying, well, we could go and give our business to somebody else. And then the, and then the, the bit I did know, which was the, the media agency nexus. I, it's, I, I take my hat off to them. It's a really, really tough job. And as, as we know, agencies have had to keep reinventing themselves and I mean you wrote a piece on the weekend about what's been happening with the Banking Royal Commission and have the agencies taken the hint of what that might mean and particularly where it comes to if you work for your client you really have to work for your client you bet you bet and I think that's that's part of the difficulty for them and the fact that you know everybody there's the disintermediation there's you know when Google first set out, there was the whole, well, we don't need agencies. We can go round agencies. We can go direct. And in my sales career, I've always believed that you have to have a relationship with the agency, but you also have to have a relationship with the client. And many agencies found that uncomfortable. And indeed, some agencies tried to stop you doing that, which I think ultimately just shows that it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a tough job and agencies just, seem to keep reinventing themselves and and seem to keep thinking about well what's the next step so for me it was um it was also because most of my agency life also included me moving countries and moving a family overseas um and I wouldn't change it for quids but uh, but it was not without its challenges Nick just go back to what you said earlier um you said that um you said that a decade ago, uh, maybe a bit longer, that the uh, Australia was ahead in the digital media curve and now seems to have fallen behind. What do you think caused that? Uh, it's actually a lot more than a decade ago. I wish it wasn't. But I'm talking – so I went to 9MSN in 97. So I'm t- I literally it's 20-plus 20, 20 years ago. Look, I think, um, again, without wanting to sort of be the, the old guy in the pub going in the good old days, but – but you, when you when you've lived either in San Francisco or London for ten years, which I have done up until recently, and you just see how much life is completely embraced, the, the digital world is completely embraced 
in what you do in terms of, you know, um, uh, Wi-Fi speeds and all of that kind of stuff, um, online shopping, all of those things. I think it became a much more natural thing and grew because of it. I think in Australia, we had a lot of people who had a lot of vested interests in slowing down the things that would have helped us stay ahead. So for me, you know, the the early days at uh, 9MSN in Yahoo, we were all thinking about e-commerce and how we were going to be able to make a, you know, make a move in those spaces. And you have, th- you know, companies like Seek and car sales and realestate.com. And there was all this chatter at the time that, oh, none of them were going to survive, you know. Now, I mean, I'm sure I've just listed, you know, a bunch of companies that are very, very successful. And I could probably think of a few that didn't make it. But this whole idea of they were to be resisted. And I think I think that's probably got a fair bit to play. I, there's no question our critical mass of people has to have had some form of part to play in that where you don't just have enough people to be able to make new ideas work for long enough to get enough money to keep going. You know, you can launch something in the States or in the UK and it can be niche, but it can still have enough people to make to make a quid. The cost of, you know, you think, you know, printing newspapers, whatever, it's not that different in the UK than it is in Australia. But if you're printing 400,000 instead of 30,000, there's a very big difference, you know, in the cost base and the opportunity. Now, obviously, we talk about Yahoo, and that was in the days before Yahoo 7. And of course... Very we- much, very much. I mean, Yahoo was very definitely... In those days, when I joined, it was a search engine. And in my time there, we were talking about it not being a search engine because search engines weren't cool. And what you needed to be was a destination site. And we've seen so many, obviously, some different owners of or iterations of Yahoo and the whole sort of, I guess, most recently, the the, the, the Verizon, until mm-hmm. quite recently, Verizon Oath, back in the day, AOL. Um, for some reason... Of all of the brands, Yahoo has felt like the one that the US owners have come and gone in their level of commitment to Australia. What, as someone who's, who's observed it all that time, what, what what was going on there? Do you think is it just that we're 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 small in their thinking versus the bigger problems in the US that they're always coping with? Look, I don't I don't know. I mean, if you if you work for a global company, which I have a number globally in a properly global com- com- company. Australia is usually between 1% and 2% of your revenue. And yes, that makes it in the, I guess, in the, in the smaller section of, um, of the countries and the way that companies are set up. When Tony Ford set up Yahoo, I think, I might be wrong again, but I think Yahoo was like number three or number four in the Yahoo world. And when I took over from Tony, we were absolutely at the top table. We reported to America. And I mean, Australia always bats above its weight. I mean, I talk about one or two percent. And yet on any gauge of where Australia sits as a country globally, you're usually talking top 10 in terms of where it where it actually sits. But then the sheer scale of it makes it smaller. So maybe, I don't know, maybe... Maybe there's no question that being 
Uh, I mean, when I when I was setting up Vivo globally, we set Australia up very early. Part of that was because I knew Australia, and that made it easier for me to get through what is an incredibly complex um, area, which is uh, music rights um, uh, organisations and having a deal to actually legally be able to have Well, let's talk about Vivo. This is a good timing because I think, weirdly, the, the Beresford pub has featured quite a lot in Mumbrella's life over the years. It was where the name was cooked up and it was where we had our notorious moment with the uh, part where we wrote about the party, with the, the, the big agency party with the burlesque strippers. Uh, <laughs> but it was also um, where Vivo had their big launch for Australia, where I think was where, where you and I connected when you just, or reconnected, reconnected when you just come back into, yeah, that, uh, into that role. Yeah. I actually still have the photographs of, of that night. And actually that night was, a, was an incredibly special night for me personally because having left Australia, what would it have been? It would have been about five years before that, maybe four, four or five years, to come back to launch Vivo, to have all these agency guys there who, you know, you have these interesting relationships with, you know, when you're on the sales side and what have you. And to have Michael Gudinski there, getting up on stage and raving about what we were doing with Vivo, which was fantastic. And I'm a, as you know, I'm a huge music head. So the idea that you could do these things, get some really good talent to come and sing and have pretty much the, uh, the Australian uh, media and marketing industry all in one place. But going back to the original point, this whole idea of Australia being a place which is friendly, which is not difficult, sort of from a regulatory point of view to set things up. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I, I can't answer why Yahoo went all in its different ways, but I, but I guess maybe Australia looks more attractive at the beginning and then the revenues maybe aren't as big as suddenly when you start to get traction in France and you see, you know, with 90 million people, you suddenly start seeing your revenues burgeon and you go, well, actually, we should be spending a lot more time thinking about France and Australia. Well, let's get into what you're up to now. So you've yeah. been at Pure Profile a little bit over a year Correct. now, would it be? Yeah. Um, Paul, do you want to kick us off on this part of the conversation? Uh, yeah. So um, when uh, last year when we spoke, um, you, you said that Pure Profile needed to explain better what it does. Um, do you think you're doing that? Um, I think we're getting better at it. I would never say we're there and we've done it. Part of part of that comment was was born out of a belief really from my first day at Pure Profile that we had a very broad range of businesses, too many, and getting focus of a business of our size on each of those businesses was going to be crucial. And I would have said to you, I know, um, I would have talked a lot about integration and the idea of being able to to better bring parts of the business together. So I think that um, what we needed to do was be very clear on what we offered the market. And I think that has been difficult if you have disparate businesses. And I joined at a time when lots of people were saying, why did you buy this or why did you do that? And obviously, much as I wasn't there at the time, you have to get you have to get up to speed pretty quickly and understand what the what the what the thinking was uh, within the business at the time. What I realized very early on and have been saying and banging on about as much as possible, even through all the things that have happened in the last uh, 13, 14 months I've been there, 
is that we are prim primarily a technology company that is focused on data and insights. And that is at the center of everything we do. And there's no point for me of having any of the businesses we had at that point if they didn't plug into that. And so data and insights and, you know, it's very easy to talk about data and analytics and it's, you know, all the cool kids are doing that now. But you've got to, you've got to think a bit more differently in terms of the equality of the value exchange between consumer and provider. You've got to think about the transparency that's needed in today's world um, of when people are giving information over what we do, it's all about, you know, you're giving us information. It's active. It's not, we're not doing something behind your back. And yet, you know, we've just done some research recently with which 50 that talks about people going, well, hold on a minute. If I'd known that by doing that with Facebook, I was giving them this much information, then I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want a, um, a dedicated advertising, you know, or, or relevant ads. If I have to get, if the price of that is giving this information and, there's that whole. I think we're we're right in the in the thick of it now, where there's this whole idea of well, if my data is that that important, then what's the exchange for it? And what we're trying to do at Pure Profile is really aim very definitely at being in the middle and pushing for a fair exchange and equality between brands and consumers. And I suppose Pure Profile, I because I think back to it, so. It I'm guessing it began to cross my radar in about 2010, 2011, mm -hmm. um, maybe even a fraction later. But at that point, it, it felt like the central point was it was a consumer panel. So the idea being that effective people were, were, were paid to do surveys, mm -hmm. share what they think about brands, and they're actually incentivized with, you know, a few cents or, mm -hmm. or a few dollars if they, if they did a lot of it. The idea being then that would help advertisers actually talk to those people. So it wasn't just research panels. It was actually then helping those advertisers speak directly to those people. And I remember even then I chatted to Paul Chan, the founder, who's I think not involved in the day-to-day, -day, but still a major shareholder as, as, as far as I know. Um, and you could see he had a brain the size of a planet, but it was incredibly complicated to get across what he saw mm -hmm. just because it was, it, it was a, burgeoning space we weren't in panic mode about privacy and transparency mm. at that point um and i suppose that's always the challenge for for any tech agency ceo is how do you simplify something that's fundamentally complicated look i think from my perspective it's very easy i'm not um i wouldn't say i'm a simple guy but i am absolutely not a technologist and i have to see the value if i if i go back to my base skill i started life after uni in work as a sales guy and if you're going to sell something to somebody if you can't explain it easily and help them understand what the benefit of buying whatever it is you're selling to them you ain't going to be a successful salesperson now i'm lucky i was a successful salesperson and maybe maybe well maybe it's not like maybe it's the understanding of how you go about being able to help people understand what the benefit is of what you have. And I think that to me is fundamental in terms of if you have a service, a business, whatever, people need to understand what they're getting. And I mean, your point about the panel, I mean, that's still very much at the heart 
of pure profile. But whereas maybe previously it was always seen as you get some cents or some dollars, my view has constantly been that there could be a different exchange to for people to give up their data or their information. And the you know it's a, it's an easy example for me because as I said I'm a music nut. But if you think about Spotify, you think about the idea that if Spotify want to know more about me, what have Spotify got that would be of value to me? And that would either be some form of discount on my monthly subscription or possibly even more access to some content that I get specially because I've shared my information. And that's just the easiest way for me to describe it because that's the value. Now, actually, the value of what I get might still only be a few cents or a dollar or two. But it means so much more to me. And that's when you start to think about, so you don't just want to attract people who want to get, you know, want to make 20 bucks a month on giving their data or selling their data. You actually want to approach, you want to, you want to attract people like me. And on that basis, I'm not, I don't have 20 minutes to fill out a survey. So how, how are you going to attract me in a different way? And I think as a business, that's the challenge. And I was going to say, and and I suppose the other challenge for, for you as a CEO is, it's probably like that for any CEO of any ASX company. You've got, Essentially, you've, you, you've got a product, it's how you talk about it, it's how you think about it, but you've also just got all of those distractions that come with running a company. Correct. And you inherited a company that was facing some pretty tough financial challenges. As you say, you were you, you were un- untangling some previous acquisitions. Last week we talked about the fact that um, you just sold the, the cohort acquisition, mm-hmm. which had been acquired before you were there. Um Bad share price at the moment. So last time I looked, I think the market cap was like three million or something. Yep. Uh, there's been plenty of stuff historically about battles between the shareholders who went public on all of that. It feels to me like you need some sort of game changer to focus on the business. Well, I think um, honestly, I look at it and say, moving um, moving on cohort was is is part of that. And if you think about uh, what's happened in the year I've been at. Um, pure profile, a lot has changed. And all of that has been around firstly focusing on the health and the future of the business and sort of equal first, the people. I mean, if you, if you don't look after your people, if you, don't, if you don't motivate your people, if you don't have a great culture, then you don't really have much of a business in the first place. And so I've looked at what I thought a future pure profile successful pure profile would be and and am working very definitely towards that and I think what you saw with the cohort sale was possibly one of the last pieces of the jigsaw in that I think there's a couple of other pieces and very soon you'll see some announcements about some of the things we're doing some of the clients that we're working with and the way we're working with them that I hope will really crystallize what we're doing as a business and to go back to the question you asked me about, you know, what do you do and what's the simple message is helping people or helping businesses better understand consumers and in turn giving consumers true value out of that process. And let's talk about some of your people briefly. Um, do you have all of your key people in place now? Um, oh, look, I think it, you're you're always in a I mean, a, 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 an organization is a living sort of breathing organism. So you're always in 
you're always in some 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 form of flux. I think the 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 best thing that that I feel that I've I've given the business is um, from a shareholder perspective clarity on what we're trying to do and then on the people that are going to lead the business. So I think we're 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 comfortable that or I'm comfortable that we have really good people running the business. And talk us through some of the key people. I guess somebody who'd be certainly familiar to listeners of the Manuela Cask is Ben Sharp. Yes, well, interestingly, Ben um, left the business recently. Ah, okay. So, is this a Mumbrella exclusive, um, or did I fail to read this while I was on holiday? I don't, well, I don't know if you. I don't. I, I don't know if it's been reported anywhere in particular. But Ben decided that uh, he wanted to go off and do something else, and so uh, so Ben left us a couple of weeks ago. And I think you know therein lies therein lies an interesting part about about culture and about people. Um, and I guess we all. When we start somewhere, we all go, okay, is this, you know, what I expected it to be? Is this what I wanted it to be? And obviously, for whatever reason, Ben decided that he wanted to go and do something different. So does this mean you're open to uh, resumes from people with sales (laughs) experience? Well, you know, it's interesting. When Ben was leaving, obviously, I knew that the cohort sale was imminent. And on that basis, my view was, well, let's get beyond the cohort sale because actually... Maybe what I need in that space is something different to to what I thought I needed when when Ben joined us. And also, you're from a sales world yourself, anyway, so it's a world you understand. And I've and I've actually spent the last two weeks um, seeing our clients, and uh, and for me, that's a great thing because it's actually, as I said, it's how I started out in business, and it's I actually love doing it. Um, and I think it gives them a platform to say, okay, well, we've got the CEO, he's listening. What can and I'm saying? What can we do better? How can we better engage? What are you trying to do with your business? If we look at sort of pure profile in a year's time, mm-hmm. how, how will it look? Um, for me, pure profile is yet to really deliver on the most exciting piece of all, which is our platform. Uh, we have a fantastic and long-standing relationship with News Corp. And again, going back to Paul's vision years ago, the, the vision of one profile for a person that covered declared data, not that it was called that in those days, uh, opinions, behaviour that enabled, um, in this case, a publisher to better understand um, their consumers and had the opportunity then to have an exchange, a bit like I was talking earlier, an exchange where it's not necessarily about money it might be about access to content in terms of news is behind news is subscription walls um, that we believe is and I believed when I joined the company is the most exciting thing that we do and we're now able to start rolling that out and that's I'm, I mentioned earlier maybe um, some announcements that we'll talk about soon uh, coming through with some clients that we're working in that way but the reality is if you you know it's no it's it it's no coincidence that the major, if you like, content distribution com- companies that are really driving forward and being successful now are predominantly based on uh, user pay models and not advertising models. And it's, I don't think that's... That's think a space that, for a whole other podcast, well, isn't believe, it? Believe me, I, I think that the today the advertising market is as, maybe they don't realise yet, but is as challenged as it's ever going to be in terms of users that going back to that fair exchange the idea that users do get now that they're prepared and they need to pay for the content they love 
I think news had a big part to play in that years ago when they built a paywall when it was very, very uncool to do so. You think about the Netflixes, the stands, and the idea that people are prepared to pay um, to get the content they really, they really want. That then starts to challenge the advertising model. And I think if you're thinking about a user, content creator, direct relationship, Pure Profile has a really exciting part to play in that in terms of the technology we have and the way that we can help bring those together. Nick, thanks so much for finding the time to talk to us. Thanks very much, guys. And just before we go, the entry deadline for this year's Mumbrella Awards is coming up quick. You've got about two weeks to pull your entries together with the submission deadline on March 15th. So if you haven't already, be sure to head over to mumbrella.com.au forward slash Mumbrella Awards, that's with two A's, to review the categories and see which ones you qualify for. And if you've got any questions, you can shoot them through to Lauren on lauren at mumbrella.com.au. Okay, that's all for this week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thanks Jess. Bye.